It's 4.15 a.m. You're eight years old. In 45 minutes, you'll be at the corner waiting for the bus in the dark. But first, you get your six-year-old brother up. You dress, you brush your teeth. You hear your dad come in from his shift and your mom getting ready for hers. After almost two hours on the bus, you're at school now. And it's 7 a.m. You're about to start nine hours of instruction. Nine hours filled with vocabulary, spelling, geometry, cities and states, shifting from one area to another, walking past bullies, the class clowns. You're in and out of chairs, shuffling up and down halls, pushing past a ton of people for nine hours. You're expected to be completely present and accepting of everyone and everything in front of you. And by 4.30, you're tired. You climb up the steps to a crowded bus and you take your seat. The bus seems to circle around and around. And by 6.30, when the entire bus is empty, you're back where you started, the bus stop. You do this every day. You show up. The question is, who's showing up for you? I'm Eve Jeffcoat. And I'm Bridget Todd. You're listening to Afropunk Solution Sessions. Afropunk is a safe place, a blank space to freak out in, to construct a new reality, to live our lives as we see fit while making sense of the world around us. Here at Afropunk, we have the conversations that matter to us, conversations that lead to solutions. You know, there's this myth or this notion that kids in the inner city, they just don't want to learn. Or perhaps if they just worked harder in school, then they could overcome these barriers. That's Matthew Kincaid. He runs Overcoming Racism, a program that works with schools and teachers to help confront and disrupt racism and white supremacy in schools. Well, my kids will get to school at 7 o'clock in the morning, many of whom were waiting on the bus stop from 5 that morning. They went to school from 7 in the morning to 4.30 in the afternoon or the evening to then return home with hours of homework, 15 minutes of recess, 20 minutes of lunch. And these are the kids that we say are lazy and ungrateful. I know I was never asked to work that hard in school. And despite these realities... And despite these perverted systems, my kids still came in every single day with the audacity to believe. And so I want to help to create educators that meet their belief with passion and purpose. And the training to teach them to navigate systems of oppression, to navigate economic disadvantage, to invest in themselves and to invest in their communities along the way. I founded Overcoming Racism because teachers need intentional anti-racism training so we can develop teachers who are anti-racist practitioners and agents of change. And we can also develop equitable and culturally responsive schools. During his time as a teacher and assistant principal, Matthew started noticing things. 
like that most of the teachers were white and the students they were teaching were black. And he noticed that white teachers and administrators never acknowledged racism. It was a stark contrast to the kids who couldn't pretend racism didn't exist, who faced it every day. You would imagine that in schools and institutions all over this country, we would have already started to have these conversations about race. But to be a teacher in America, you don't have to go through any anti-racism training. And currently, 82% of our teaching force is white. You would imagine in a country that was built based on the labor of slaves, on the land of natives, that we would have a curriculum about race in schools. You would imagine that in a nation where parents used to bring children to the lynchings of children, we would have a curriculum about race and racism in schools. You would imagine in a country in which integration was something that had to be forced upon us, and yet 50 years later, we are still woefully segregated, that we would have a curriculum about race and racism in schools. But once again, in order for us to overcome racism, we have to acknowledge our country has to repent and we have to repair the vestiges of systemic racism and white supremacy in our society. We'll have more solution sessions after this quick break. Teachers may be able to pretend that racism doesn't exist once they enter a classroom, but all a student has to do is turn on the news or log on to Facebook for a reminder. We were in bed and then they started shooting and then my mom came in and told us to get on the floor and they'll get up until it stops. And then it stopped and one person died in the police game. You know, when I think about particularly the Black Lives Matter movement and the access that my young people have to seeing violence done upon black bodies, without, <laughs> once again, in school, people explaining to them, you know, generations of police brutality and, you know, the relationship that law enforcement has played in, in the black community, without explaining to them the connection to, of that violence to patterns of lynchings um, or, or violence that existed, you know, dating all the way back to the days of enslavement, to place those things into a context for young people is it's been one of the most challenging things that I, I feel like I have to navigate as a teacher, even before um, founding Overcoming Racism, was my students coming into school after uh, one of the prominent cases of police brutality took place and really asking me, you know, Mr. McKay, like, what, what's going on? Am I safe? You know, how am I supposed to process this? Is this person going to be punished for what has happened here? And so, you know, there are these reports and data that's coming out now that suggest that, you know, when black death goes viral, it can trigger PTSD-like trauma. And many of our kids, as a result of systemic racism, are already in environments where they have a closer proximity to trauma. And now social media has provided to our young people another means to continue to be re-traumatized without schools being really well-equipped to explain to young people kind of what's going on. There is growing outrage tonight after an unarmed African-American teenager was shot and killed by police in the St. Louis suburb of Ferguson, Missouri. But there are conflicting reports about what led up to the shooting. Oh, Jesus! Please! 
on the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, outrage and anger. Protesters of different ages and races demanding answers in the shooting death of 18-year-old Michael Brown at the hands of a policeman. Police shot this man for no reason. Piaget Crenshaw, who took the cell phone video, says she saw those shots from her apartment balcony. He's running this way. He turns his body towards this way. Hands in the air, being compliant. He gets shot in his face and chest and goes down and dies. I was at a school in Houston not too long ago, and I was talking to some of the students there, and I was talking to them a little bit about myself, and I was telling them about how after Michael Brown's death, my students protested, and you know the ways in which we organized that, and you know they looked at me and they're like, we. We didn't do anything when Michael Brown was killed or when any of the people after that, you know, we didn't talk about the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, we haven't talked about the Black Lives Matter movement in schools. And I think about just like how unfair that is to young people to uh, have them have such close access to something that is, you know, really emotionally triggering and without them to have very much of an outlet for adults explaining to them, you know, what's going on in the context that these things exist in. In reality, a lot of these kids are carrying the legacy of racial trauma on their shoulders, along with their backpacks and books. And you can't discipline away trauma. You know, many of the things that people pull their hair out about that are taking place in urban schools, if you really melt it down, it's a result of racial trauma that young people are enduring outside of schools, and also the result of racial trauma that's been reified inside of schools for those young people. For some reason, the solution that many schools are opting into in terms of trying to address the educational inequity is to place black and brown kids in the most restrictive, the most exclusionary environments possible. And I just don't quite understand how that is an appropriate response to the, the cause or the source of why many times these young people are not able to achieve at the same rate as their peers in other communities uh, who have access to better resources, their proximity to things like crime, their proximity to things like healthy food are very different for many of the kids who grow up in inner city environments and go to inner city schools. Drug use, gang activity, shootings, drive-bys, you know, there, there are things that are dealing with and which our average kids may not have to deal with. There was shooting, two guys dead, two more hurt. Two teenagers were shot outside a busy fast food restaurant. Well, one of the most extensive studies on post-traumatic stress disorder in the community was done here in Atlanta, and it found the staggering statistic that of those who lived in low-income areas in this city, 46% suffered from PTSD. That is a rate much higher even than soldiers who've seen war. Everyone in this section, put both your hands above your heads. Put them up! You people represent the 70% of our students who just failed the practice exam. 70%! But that is not their failure. Keep your hands up high. Because you are failing to educate them. This is the posture that many of our students will wind up in. Only they'll be staring down the barrel of a gun. I haven't seen Lean on Me. <laughs> what? Okay, Just get, so you know. get on the microphone right now. Uh -oh. So, Eve, you've been seeing this movie Lean on Me? 
Uh, no, I, I haven't. <laughs> okay, sorry well, to say. <laughs> it's a black classic. You need to get on that. Basically, I think it really illustrates a lot of what Matthew was saying. So here's the plot, the basic plot. Okay. Ron Clark is this sort of hippy-dippy teacher. He's teaching in like a hippy-dippy school. Um, he's wearing a daishiki. He's barefoot. He's sitting cross-legged on the desk. Pencil that, behind the ear. Yeah, he's that kind, he's gotcha. that kind of teacher. Gotcha. And he gets transferred to the worst performing school in New Jersey. It's like the, the worst performing school in the state. It's East Side High. Okay. So the students in the school are troubled, and the movie really makes that point very clear. But the subtext is really that all these kids are dealing with immense amounts of trauma. And, you know, you see the girl who's at school every day, but her mom is a crack addict. Or you Mm -hmm. see the kid who's, you know, hasn't had a decent meal in however long, but he's still showing up every day. Do they do that in kind of a montage way, or do they actually go deep into the characters and do that? They do a pretty—a fairly good job of going deep into the characters. It's still an 80s movie, so there's still cheesy montages. But— So you know how in 80s movies, they always do that thing where there's a montage of the person working really hard and trying to get better, Mm -hmm. and then at the end, you know they're going to get better. Right. This movie kind of follows that model, but one reason why I bring it up in this episode is because I saw this movie when I was a kid, and this scene sticks with me. So they're doing the typical 80s movie montage of, you know— they're, they've got their confidence up. They've got mm-hmm. their pride up. You know, they're working hard late at night, like cracking the books. And a kid's falling asleep on his hand because he's so tired, but okay. he gets up and keeps studying. Okay, I'm and here so you for think, it. Yeah, and so you're thinking, Don't oh, disappoint me, Bridget. Well, so you're thinking, <laughs> of course these kids are going to pass this test. Mm-hmm. And there's this one scene during the montage where it's from the perspective of the teacher who is proctoring the exam. And she looks over the shoulder at the kid who's taking the practice exam for this big test. And it's a multiple choice question. And... It's one of those test questions that's like, blank is to blank as blank is to blank. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember the exact question, but it involves, the question is asking, what is a healthy breakfast? And the answers are milk and cereal, soda and this, you know, nothing. And obviously, anybody looking at that test question would say milk and cereal. Like, it's a very obvious what the answer to that question is. If you know what a healthy breakfast looks like, it's milk and cereal. But the kid circles one of the answers that is clearly wrong. And so, you know, the movie does go on. Like, in that moment, they don't do very well on the test. I think at the end of the movie, they do. But that scene really illustrates that even though they are doing this feel-good montage of, oh, they got their confidence up, they're working really hard, working really hard isn't going to help you if you don't know what a healthy breakfast looks like. If If your reality is so tarnished by white supremacy that you live in a household where you have no idea the concept of a healthy breakfast. So it's pretty realistic about the things that are going on in these children's lives at home. They don't just exist in a vacuum. Right. And that no amount of grit or hard work or staying up late or easy fix movie montages is going to help real systematic inequality. And that's what these kids are up against. So the movie's kind of cheesy and it ends cheesy and Certainly, it's problematic in lots of ways, but that one scene stuck with me in that it doesn't matter how many montages you have. It doesn't matter how hardworking these kids are, how many good speeches you make. If you are a kid and you're up against that kind of systematic inequality, it may not help you that much. Keep your hands up. Now you are getting a hint of the kind of hopelessness and shame that makes those failing students Throw up their hands at the thought of facing a world for which you have not prepared them. You are getting the merest inkling of the despair they feel when left to the mercy of the streets. There will be more Solution Sessions after this quick break. Matthew says schools are dealing with 
or not dealing with this trauma in two ways. Either they tell students the way to escape the legacy of racial trauma is to work harder, or they teach them to ignore it altogether. I think that when we don't provide young people with the tools to critically analyze and understand the systems of oppression that they navigate on a daily basis, it can engender a lot of really unhealthy responses to stimuli that really are very external of themselves. But, you know, oftentimes school environments promote a myth of meritocracy, this notion that if you just work hard and if you just show more grit, then that is the ingredient to overcome any systemic barrier that's in your way. But when you tell a kid who is on the receiving end of generational poverty, manufactured generational poverty through redlining policy, you know, through employment discrimination, you name it, um, the kid is on the receiving end of generational lack of access to quality education, that all they need to do is just work their way out of it. Um, that's a really unfair message to provide a child without providing any sort of historical or present day context of sociopolitical awareness around the obstacles that they're navigating in a daily lived experience. In effect, in these neighborhoods, children's brains are measurably growing up faster because of what they're exposed to. That affects their ability to learn, it makes it difficult for them to build relationships, makes them more susceptible to depression and to drug use. Unlike soldiers who come home from war and now they no longer are in that dangerous environment, a lot of the children in this study are still living in that dangerous environment. And so I think for a young person, it's very easy to turn that um, pain that comes as a result of racial trauma inward on, upon themselves. And so I think that a lot of the responses that we see in schools around ways in which young people resist rules or expectations or um, teachers who may look different from them or teachers who come from different communities or areas, I think very much is a defense mechanism, a response to these triggers that they're experiencing both outside and inside of schools. How many spirituals should we sing? How many spirituals should we sing? Tell me how many spirituals should we sing? When they feel it in their bones and they don't do a thing. How many battles must we fight? How many battles must we fight? Tell me how many battles must we fight? When So the schools that we work with, um, teachers being able to provide these identity-safe spaces for young people, you know, really allows young people to name their oppression and thus work against that. You know, you can now take your anger out at a system versus taking the anger out on, upon yourselves. So what do we do? How do we make sure our schools aren't failing Black children? I've heard a lot of this idea that Love can conquer all, you know, all you have to do to make a Nazi not a Nazi anymore is give him a hug. Or this idea that young kids today don't need to be taught about racism because they won't pass it down. Well, I think we can both say that that wouldn't be effective at all. It's not effective. And I think research shows it's not effective. I understand why people cling to it because it's very comforting, because it feels nice to say. And even as someone who knows it doesn't work, I find myself sort of comforted by it, but it doesn't work. It doesn't, it's not a good thing to cling to if it doesn't actually get us anywhere. I think it's something that we aspire to. It can be very easy to 
try to imagine a world that we want it to be. We have to be realistic about the world that it is. And that means addressing problems that are very uncomfortable, um, hitting those places of trauma. And I think that's necessary. You know, I think that there is this strange sentiment that systemic racism will just get better over time. You know, sometimes when I go and do trainings, people say things like, well, yeah, I understand, you know, in my generation um, how these realities played out. But, you know, my kids, they're colorblind. They don't see color. <laughs> and in reality, what we do by not giving young people the tools to have uh, kind of literacy around how race functions, then, you know, they're swept up by what they see in the media. They're swept up by what they see in other popular forms of entertainment. They're swept up by what they see and learn in schools. Schools should deal with race head on and they should deal with it early. I think this, again, goes back to the idea that young people can't be racist, babies can't be racist. But we know that's not true. Yeah, it's shown that racism is instilled in children very early. I think self-esteem helps young Black children to resist the negative messages and negative stimuli that they're advertised about themselves on a daily basis. Racial pride also helps. You know, um, Dr. Jeff Duncan Andrade talks about how your culture is your medicine, right? And how, you know, really one of the things that is one of the most significant deaths of the enslavement of African people was the depth of culture. Um, and, you know, there are ways in which, you know, obviously we've created our own culture through struggle and through sacrifice. But to be disconnected from your culture is something that has this dramatic impact. And so, you know, representation builds self-esteem. It builds racial pride, which I think builds students' armor to navigate, you know, the oppressive systems that they have to navigate, you know, throughout their lives. In addition to lifting all kids up, Schools need to take a long, hard look at why they do what they do when it comes to disciplining kids. After the first year of implementing the anti-racism trainings at my school, we reduced our suspensions by 75%, while increasing student happiness by 15% and raising our school performance score. And people say, well, how did you reduce your suspensions by so much? We decided to stop suspending kids because the main reason why kids were being suspended in the first place was because of some sort of disconnect that was happening in school. So you respond to that by kicking a kid out of school and only making them more confused when they come back. What we've been doing doesn't make sense. In the words of Andre Perry, there is no problem facing black and brown children in America today that ending systemic racism won't solve. W.E.B. DuBois once said that education is anywhere and everywhere political and that the political goal of education for people of oppressed groups must be aimed at finding a means to end their oppression. If we're not teaching kids how to navigate oppression, and if as educators we're not working to find means to end their oppression, then what are we doing exactly? My personal belief as a person of color is that it's not necessarily our job to get white people to understand what we go through every day or the challenges of what it means to be a black person. I think white people should work to understand white supremacy. There's a great quote that says, if you come to help me, then leave. But if you come because you believe that your liberation is bound up in mine, then let us work together. 
What's the solution, Bridget? Teach kids about race early. What's the solution, Bridget? Be realistic, not idealistic, when discussing racism with kids. What's the solution, Bridget? Demand that schools meaningfully address the issues that Black children face. What's the solution, Bridget? Speak up for children. Afropunk Solution Sessions is a co-production between Afropunk and How Stuff Works. Your hosts are Bridget Todd and Eves Jeffcoat. Executive co-producers are Julie Douglas, Jocelyn Cooper, and Quan Latif-Hill. Dylan Fagan is supervising producer and Kathleen Quillian is audio engineer. Chandler Mays was our audio editor this week. Many, many thanks to Casey Pegram and Annie Reese for their production and editorial oversight. And many thanks to our on-the-ground Atlanta crew, Ben Bolin, Corey Oliver, and Noel Brown. The Underside of Power is performed by Algiers. The song Deja Vu by Makia Javon was performed live with Cool Nasty on December 5th, 2017 at The Medicine Show, New Orleans. The Medicine Show was presented by Red Bull and Mapico and produced by New Creatures at the Civic Center in New Orleans, Louisiana. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Afropunk.